Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which you can found anywhere podcasts can be found. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and I am here with friend of the show, Mitchell Beer from the Energy Mix. Thanks so much for being here. So glad to be here, Stephen. Happy New Year, belatedly. Yes, Happy New Year. And so... We've now had a couple segments back and forth, and I think it was the last time we spoke, we were musing about naming, needing a name for this segment that we are sort of doing. And this will be a special hour-long episode for folks, which is just the two of us chatting. And the name that a listener suggested, which was Have a Beer with Mitchell Beer, is the vibe that we're going for. So that's what we're doing. Great name. Thank you to the listener for the suggestion. We're here, we're here for you. Well, I have to say to that, Stephen, first of all, thank you to the listener. And my immediate reaction was, okay, be careful what you wish for. But we'll, you know, as you know, we always try to make it worthwhile. Yeah, you know, people have been making plays on my last name all my life. They, they, they seem to like the name better in the summertime than in the winter. And I just don't get that. But otherwise, you know, let's just, let's just roll with it. Yeah, exactly. And so the other idea that we sort of combined with this was to try to make these conversations like if you were just going to have a beer with someone who, you know, has the amount of energy knowledge that you have, what you want to ask. And so what we're going to try to do is we're going to solicit questions. So if folks have questions uh, for Mitchell or that you'd want to know from an energy expert, please uh, reach out. You can send us to the Conduct Us page and send us an email or, or tweet at us. And then we will get your questions and we'll collate them. We're trying to find other ways to receive questions. So if you have other ways to send them to us, by all means, if you know, you want to, I was going to say like fly a plane with a question across the skies of Toronto. I hope I see it. You could do that. Not great for carbon emissions. So I might regret. Well, I say, was going to say, I mean, you, you realize that sustainable aviation fuels are not nearly ready for prime time and might never be, but now I'm just getting way too, uh, too pretending to be an expert here. So I think I better just stop talking. <laughs> I mean, I think that's fair. And I would recommend starting with the attempts to email us before you go through aviation, but much lower carbon. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so, yeah, so I've got a question that I've sort of pondered for a while and that I'd be love to get your input on. And then we'll go to a sort of second segment where you'll sort of give us a bit of ideas around some of the stories that you found over the past month that you find personally interesting. And then we'll end with a couple of stories of news stories that we just feel like people should cover. But yeah, so this is the episode, the first of a hopefully a series called Having a Beer with Mitchell Beer. And we'll dive in. But I'm pumped. So question number one, and this is something that I think we've maybe discussed a little bit before, but... I would be really interested to get sort of your overarching feels. I also think it's sort of an important question to start with in this. I went trying to get a sense of where you're coming from, really, which is how did you, would you see a 100% carbon-free energy grid? Like, what does it look like? What are our energy mixes? How are we doing it? And And yeah, paint me a picture. Well, I think it's about, I actually, what comes to mind first is a, a conference speaker who I heard decades ago now, who asked everybody in the room to put up your hand, put up, put up their hands, say, okay, who has a to-do list? You know, of course, we all put up our hands. And then he said, who has a to-stop list? And we all took our hands down because it's always additive. It's not, a, you know, now what do we stop doing? And, you know, on so many levels, part of what's challenging and really exciting about this shift we're in now is that this is both. Everyone listening to this show knows the to-stop list, that the grid cannot be burning fossil fuels. We are hearing, oh, you know, sure, we can get, and we're hearing from, from industry, we're hearing from governments, sure, we can keep on burning with carbon capture and storage. We can, you know, we can sequester that carbon like mad and, you know, certain provinces that we all know who to name, you know, will tell us that in fact, fossil fuel extraction is going to continue into the indefinite future. Well, that's a show in itself, but the immediate problem for the grid is that at this point, carbon capture is not performing anywhere near what its boosters and promoters are claiming, either for the cost of it or for the amount of carbon it can capture. And there are a bunch of other problems behind that, but this is just one question. So that's the to stop, you know, and the, you know, the grid, grid emergency in Alberta over the last week, you know, has sort of brought into focus the concerns and the questions about whether in fact they can get off fossil gas 
by 2035. In fact, the clean electricity regulations don't call for that. They have lots of sort of carpets and exceptions to give provinces exactly the kind of flexibility they now say they're demanding. And in fact, I had to look back on our coverage from mid-August when, when the regulations were introduced. And in fact, our headline was, gas plants will still be permitted. You know, which is certainly not what climate hawks have been fighting for forever on this. And it gives provinces the flexibility to say, okay, we know where we want to get to. Now, how exactly do we get here? What it does mean is that by 2035, those cast plans will be the exception. They will be for, I mean, as it turns out in this grid emergency, Alberta lost, if I've understood correctly, Sorry, I won't go for a number because it's not properly in my head, but they they lost a large volume of gas generation as well as wind turbines that just weren't operating in such deep cold solar panels that, guess what, weren't collecting anything at night. We always knew that would happen, but gas plants went down as well. And we've seen that in other great emergencies and other uh, utilities as well. But the whole other question is, what do we bring on? And the first answer to that is that even as we bring more uses into electricity, because while we're doing this, don't forget, we're phasing out fossil fuels for home heating and cooling. We are phasing out fossil fuels and personal mobility by taking on electric cars and now moving into electrified trucks as well. So that's going to be more demand on the electricity grid. That is all the more reason to do everything that we can before we do anything else to reduce our demand, to use electricity more efficiently, to conserve where we can. And the shining example of that is a heat pump where it operates so vastly much more efficiently than anything else available. And in fact, I know of at least one province where the successful modeled scenario to decarbonize their grid by 2030. This is a coal province that has a 2030 deadline. The only way it works is if heat pumps are brought in so that home heat consumes less electricity. So you start out by conserving. You start out by maximizing efficiency so that you don't have to supply as much to start with. Then you supply it with renewable sources. And what's really coming on beautifully now is battery storage that allows you to store electricity you know, during the lower use periods at two in the morning, we're not using as much electricity as we are at five in the afternoon. So two in the morning is the right time to charge the battery so that you can discharge it and use that electricity at five in the afternoon or at four in the afternoon, whenever the grid needs it. What that means is that every grid operator everywhere knows down to the half hour and probably down to the minute when they are likely to see the greatest demand on the system. And they have a really good precise sense of when that is because they have to. It's their job. It depends on it. And so it doesn't take a whole lot of storage to be able to start drawing down that peak. They call it peak shaving. So you get to the point where, okay, great. We're up to X number of megawatts. We won't need to power up this methane-intensive gas plant because we're getting the power from batteries that stored the electricity when we weren't at peak. Eventually, we'll start saying, we don't need to build that gas plant because it's not just a modeled result. We have enough experience with, with batteries and other kinds of storage. We know what works. We know it's reliable. We know it's <laughs> more reliable than a gas plant that freezes up in the cold, frankly. And we've just saved billions of dollars and even more important, kept methane out of the atmosphere and particulates out of people's lungs. So that's how we get to the zero that we want by 2035. And, you know, what we're hearing in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan is 2035-ish. But that's being used as an excuse right now for doing nothing at all and vilifying the attempt. And there's absolutely no reason for that. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful. And partially because some of the things that have stayed in my head since... I spent more time focusing on sort of the energy question by itself is sort of actually how the grid itself works, right? Like how the changes are necessary in terms of, you know, one way versus two way power in, in from the standpoint of like how centralized is the power versus how distributed is a power? How much do you want to allow for power to go from 
you know, house to house rather than exclusively from power plant to house. When I'm talking about sort of things like smaller generation, like like rooftop solar, for example, because I remember one of the you know one of my classes on this topic starts with this really basic understanding of Emory Levins in the sort of hard path, soft path systems. Yep. And and for listeners who have heard me speak of this before, I apologize. But for new listeners, I will briefly explain my understanding. And you can correct me if I'm wrong about my understanding of this. My understanding basically is that the hard path energy systems are energy systems where it's very centralized, where most of the power is generated by very large power generators. And this is sort of agnostic in terms of is it renewable or not. It's more about just how much power is being generated in one specific place and how much uh, and and is the power going sort of unidirectionally out from that or is it more of an interconnected grid? And so like hydro would be a carbon free version of a hard path energy system. And it's a little bit less about how carbon intensive is it. It's more about how it's being distributed. And the argument being made sort of by Levins and my understanding by the, the course I was taking was that hard path is where we're at now and it is also somewhat difficult to fully decarbonize because of the fact that it there's not too many sources of carbon free electricity that can just be like bunched up in one place you know unless you're talking about nuclear or hydro or really 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 big wind farms for example but that you know that's not really using wind or solar in the ways that they're best used Right, they're, they're sort of best used in a more distributed fa- sort of fashion, whereas the soft path energy system is about more in- interconnected grids. So, where everywhere across Canada or you know whatever space you're trying to power has some additional energy. So you're thinking about small rooftop solar or a small wind farm or you know just a couple wind turbines on a on an actual farm where they have space these kinds of things, and the power is both being generated from them and going back into the grid and from the grid going back into to the farm or the, the house or whatever. And in that soft path, part of the argument for it is not only that it is easier to decarbonize because you know wind and solar, the cheapest energy we know currently, is is better suited to that sort of dynamic, but also it's actually more resilient because if you've ever lost all your power... You know, and and you don't have enter, you don't have solar panels on your roof or a small battery in your house. That's a big problem, and you just don't have any power, and that's you're stuck there. Whereas, in a soft pass energy system, you would have access to some additional power or be able to generate something, and it sort of it helps it sort of survive at times when you know other disruptions may occur. And you know, not here, only not only would you have additional power, but your your home or other building would be a lot more efficient because you did efficiency first. Which means, if you need to stay warm, you stay warm for longer. If you need to stay cool in the summer, you stay cool for longer. And when the systems kick in, there's less that they have to do to keep you that way. And heat pumps, right. by the way, operate in both directions. They are both, you know, you know, th- think of it as you know an air conditioner that reverses itself in winter. It's, it's more than that, but that's a sort of a good starting point. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and then you, you then you're also looking at things, you know, like theoretically passive house and this other building design stuff that can further make your building more energy efficient. But I'm curious, like I, I learned about this like 10 years ago, if not 15, 20 years ago. And Amber Levins was writing in the 70s. And so as someone who's been so in this for the last 20, 30 years, has this thinking evolved are we somewhere else in this understanding? Is that duality still really kind of the the duality that is still true to this day, or or is that sort of fallen down? There's a new sort of way of thinking about this that's maybe more useful. Stephanie, you've made my day by mentioning soft and hard energy paths, and if listeners really want to take a take a dive back into the sort of the sort of the past history and the origins of some of this work, Amory's book was called Soft Energy Paths toward a durable peace. And I'd have to look back and I didn't know you were going to do this. So I didn't have a chance to check my reference, but it was somewhere between, I would say, 1979 and 80, 81. And, you know, for, you know, many of us who've been at this for that long, that really was a, a starting point and a foundation piece, you know, just to give you a sense of how things have changed. When the work began, Again, back in like we're, we're talking 40 and 45 years ago now, nobody but Exxon and a few other fossil companies in the American Petroleum Institute 
knew that we were up against climate change. You know, they didn't bother sharing that with the rest of us. So the work began out of a deep, and for some of us, a continuing concern, not just the safety and environmental, but a whole series of arguably unsolvable problems with nuclear. And the question was whether there was a realistic alternative that for Lovins and others got into, as you say, this duality between hard and soft paths. And what I was laying out earlier when I talked about efficiency first and about, you know, trying to diversify your different sources of supply without name checking it, that a lot of that does trace back to soft energy paths. In that era, just for fun, I remember that there was a notion of necessarily necessary electrical because at the time, of course, the question was, okay, so how much can the grid actually cover for saying no nuclear? And the idea was, if I remember correctly, the idea was that a modern grid or a modern, modern energy system rather could get away with supplying about three to 5% of electricity out of, you know, as a proportion of total demand and covering, you know, mass transit and whatever other needs we had at the time. But there are so many big caveats to that. It was unknown. So imagine, folks, a time when IT was unknown. Should I tell you that early in my career, I learned to operate a telex machine because nobody had fax yet. And it was fabulous when a, a computer had 128 kilobytes of capacity and two floppy drives. And I know you're going to edit this out. Right. So but that was the era when Soft Energy Path was written. We now know that we are moving towards electrification, not away from it, because we now know that we need to get off fuels desperately, urgently. It's, a, it's the challenge of our lifetimes. We know that we are, on one hand, yes, electrifying home heat and heating, building heating and cooling. We also know that one of the biggest opportunities is to take just the desperately inefficient, the dynamically inefficient method of home heating that was, you know, all in vogue in the 70s and 80s in some in some provinces if they had hydro, and that is baseboard heating, which is ridiculous at a technical level, and replace that with heat pumps, you know, that are vastly more efficient. So, and then again, as I was saying before, getting into, you know, electrifying cars with trucks and, and heavier vehicles not too far behind, electrifying many forms of heavy industry. So so there's more demand coming along, but the, the the underlying principles, you know, first of all, that you're not looking to one or just a few sources to supply everything. You're looking at a diversity of options and whatever works best in any given setting or situation. And very importantly, the point that you're making that I, I, I what I'm hearing most often and what makes most sense to me is not that we're going to replace everything centralized with everything decentralized. But yes, we're going to recognize that there's a whole other level of community control of energy democracy that becomes possible when your only source of electricity is not what comes down to you down the line. By the way, on a transmission line that loses 30 or 40% of the electricity from source to final destination. You know, it, it it's... Yeah. ridiculous on many different levels. So to your point, yes, rooftop solar, microgrids, you know, anything that will both build local resilience and disaster, help people hold out for longer before help arrives or before things resolve. And at the same time, give people more control over their energy bills, drive down their energy bills. There's a really strong argument. First of all, that the things that we need to do to control emissions in buildings will put an end to energy poverty, which in real terms means that never, ever again will anybody ever have to choose between food and fuel. And coming out of that, I believe there's a really strong argument that in the way we think about this, in the way we communicate and advocate for it, in the way we plan it, I don't know in what universe we would ever want to work from the assumption that on a frontline real life day-to-day -day basis that the emission reductions are more important than a household not having to choose between food and fuel. So not only is that the best argument for doing it, it's the best reason for doing it. And in climate change work, we love to talk about the co-benefits. 
you know, we've been doing this for decades. I think I first remember hearing it in the late 80s, early 90s. And it's a good argument as far as it goes that, you know, if we work together and shut down this coal plant or this gas plant, we'll cleanse the air and there will be fewer asthma admissions and, 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 and you know, the emergency wards won't be as filled and we'll lose fewer, you know, days of work every year. For the person who's just brought their three-year-old to the asthma ward or to the emergency ward for the umpteenth time, who the hell cares about carbon emissions if your child has 80% blood oxygen as our daughter did once? So the benefit of doing this is that nobody has to choose between food and fuel ever again, and your baby survives. And the co-benefit is you can feel good about doing something about climate change and actually be tangibly doing something. Yeah, for sure. And that and that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. That's exactly the kind of question that I've been waiting to ask someone who would knew for <laughs> hey, like no 10 years. I hope I got it right. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if there's a right or wrong exactly. And if someone has a deeper answer to this hard pass off path, it's just oh, like... Oh, no doubt. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I mean, for me personally, you know, it's the kind of thing where you learn about something during your undergrad or during which time you're really deep yeah. in it. And then that sort of just like sits as your base knowledge as you go forward and you never really know if it's still relevant or, you know, if something's changed. And and so getting the chance to check in on those assumptions is something that I, I really appreciate. I'm so glad you are. I'm so glad they're teaching us. Yeah. And and yeah, it, it, it's absolutely, in my view, still an absolutely essential cornerstone part of the conversation and part of the practice and part of what we need to get done. Emery Lovins, by the way, is still out there doing amazing work. We, we, you know, summarize and amplify his material every time, yeah, you know, every chance we get if we see it go by. And I think a lot of what we're seeing now, not just in the way energy systems can transform, but in the way industries can transform, in the way just, just the whole idea that this work is about, if we get it right, if we do it right, if we do it thoughtfully, it's about opportunity and gain, not loss and pain. That's not his line, as far as I know, but it's what he's been driving at literally for, for decades. And after Soft Energy Path was published, about a year and a half, two, two and a half years later, he came out with a follow-up book by Emory Lovins and his critics, because the resounding, resounding, I think almost probably in almost unanimous reaction from the energy establishment was, oh, you crazy. This is impossible. And you know the line, it's impossible until it gets done. You're crazy until you're right. And I mean, that's not always true, but in this case, it definitely is. Yeah. And Times have changed, but the basic principles still hold. Oh, amazing. So, well, I got my two questions in. So listeners, if you have other questions, please do send them our way. Or as a reminder, we're going to come back for the middle segment where I'm going to ask you, Mitchell, what you have found interesting the last month. So we'll get there in a second. But before that, here's a quick music break. This is Stephen Hosutter with Mitchell Beer on The Green Majority. Take it away. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, the Breach Show, and the Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows.
And welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps on the podcast, which fit anywhere podcasts can be found, including with the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out if you have not. My name is Stephen Hostetter. If you're just joining us, we are having a beer with Mitchell Beer, which is our new segment that we've just named. And... The idea here is to solicit questions from people who want an energy expert to to answer. Like they got questions, we want to solicit questions. So by all means, send them our way. Send them to Mitchell if you want. We're going to find some different ways to collect them. But the contact us page on the GreenMajority.ca is probably the easiest way right now. And the middle segment, I'm handing the reins a little bit over to you from a standpoint of, you know, the energy mix, for those who don't know, is a aggregator of energy news from across uh, Canada and the world. And so you see a lot of news stories. I would say probably more than 97% of humanity, at least in 99, if we're specifically focused on energy specifically. And so I'm, so from your standpoint that you've sort of the news stories that you've seen come through, are there some stories that you personally find interesting or really think that the public should know about? Thanks, Stefan. Yeah, there, there, there have been uh, a few that we've been following. Actually, I mean, January has started incredibly fast. I kind of thought that it would, but I don't think any of us could have imagined it being this fast. So there has been a lot of news going by, and I'll you know sort of try to summarize it into just a few. One that we referred to in the earlier segment was the cold snap grid emergency in uh, in Alberta that started Friday, ran through about Saturday or Monday. And, you know, there's been a lot of coverage on that on the energy mix on, and, and elsewhere. When I got down to compiling our story on our site this morning, there were about 25 pieces of source material to work from. So so there's been a lot of general news on that. But a couple of things that I found really interesting as background to the story that were both produced by, by somebody else on our team. One is a study over the past week or two, I think, by the Union of Concerned Scientists in the United States, talking about gas plants having serious reliability problems in extreme weather. Where that's really important is that whether you look at this week's emergency in Alberta, whether you look at winter storm Uri in Texas in 2021, which was far more serious, about 700 people died when the grid went down, about half the state was on, on, on either, I can't remember, it was bottled water or boil water alert. Racialized communities were hit first and worst, and you knew that without me saying it, but it's important to flag it. This immediately, reflexively, the government in Texas did the same thing that the governments of Alberta and Saskatchewan did in Canada this week, and that was that they blamed wind. Oh, the renewable plant let us down. Obviously, obviously, this renewable energy stuff isn't ready for prime time. It doesn't work. And in fact, it's a, I saw a, a headline go by today, and I haven't had time to read into it yet, about how climate denial is now mutating, my word, into climate solution denial you know i i I think probably the play for climate denaries is okay well the public gets it that climate change is real and that fossil fuels cause it let's just tell people they have no alternative because the solutions don't work which is not true (laughs) be both polite and succinct but so interesting then to see one of the most credible and evidence-based civil society groups on the planet the union of concerned scientists coming up with evidence that gas plants fail when conditions get too tough. So in other words, when you need the electricity most from the source that is staking its reputation on we can deliver, guess what? You know, apart from all the other fundamental problems that are coming up with gas, they fail. And in Alberta, I don't have the full detail on this, but in some of last night's, the, the, the coverage that I was scanning through last night, when the grid emergency ended in Alberta, there were still more than 50 households on the Siksika Nation just outside just outside Calgary, the Siksika First Nation, that still didn't have power. They still didn't have home heat because of a, because of a uh, gas line that had gone out of service. So it's really interesting to see this, to my mind, as a backstory to this rush for gas, the incredible, incredible spin and political push that the gas lobby has been putting on to try to sustain their sustain their operations. And we're seeing it everywhere at, at all levels. Simultaneously, 
people in New York City are saying that the state has been too slow to close down dirty gas plants that are being used just to supply peak power. So again, this is what we were talking about earlier about peaker plants that come in just briefly at the point when electricity demand in, in this case, in the state of New York is at its maximum. Those peaker plants are pretty much invariably, it sounds like, located in, in racialized communities. They are not being, I gather, properly regulated and therefore the health risks are landing on the surrounding community. And I think all of this, we ended up running them as three separate stories because I wanted both of those to get the attention, to get the emphasis rather than just being folded into one longer piece. And they really do background, I think, the story in Alberta in ways that we haven't been hearing. A couple of others, and sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I I just have a a question about that last piece because it strikes me that batteries would be the perfect solution to peak power problems, right? Like even in a grid, even in a grid that maybe still has fossil fuels, the idea that like, because the peaker plants are always spinning in some ways, right? Like the, the, the idea that you have to be able to bring up the power within an hour means that there's still some energy draw sort of happening all the time and some gas or whatever it is being used, being burned all the time to maintain its ability to be ready for these peak moments, whereas a battery can just be hanging out, storing energy, and just waiting for these these moments where it can pop in and pop out, and totally should avoid sort of all all of these environmental problems, at least that exist within the actual ecosystem of where the batteries are located. I'm not going to get into the immense questions of how to build giant batteries that are less destroying due to the minerals that are required, but like from a standpoint of like, or where to place more decentralized batteries. Yeah. 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 But, but I don't strike me that, that these, that batteries should be able to replace the speaker pants pretty quickly if you just committed to them. It really is a, a really interesting conversation and, and, and a really interesting opportunity for power grids. And it's not just batteries. The emphasis appropriately has been on batteries, but it's pump storage. It is gravity storage. There are a few other techniques, you know, that are sort of varying levels of development. But the bottom line is, yeah, storage really can play that important role and then gradually become more and more significant to to, to bolster the grid as as solar and wind become more become more prominent. What we're already finding, and this is a Clean Energy Canada study that goes back to, I believe it's 2022, that already in Alberta and Ontario, solar plus storage and wind plus storage are cheaper than gas plants. And that's before the 40% reduction in solar costs that is foreseen. I don't have it right in front of me by 2030 or 2035. So for planning terms, for purposes for utility, that's right around the corner. You know, or for grid operator. So yeah, it, it it's huge potential. And in fact, uh, Jason Wang from the Pemberton Institute in Calgary was in one of the news stories saying that for the first time on Saturday, the batteries already deployed in Alberta delayed the need for the electricity system operator to issue a grid alert by a few hours. And this time it wasn't enough to hold off the emergency completely because they were in such dire circumstance that they had deep cold leading to record electricity demand, two gas plants offline when, you know, when wind turbines not spinning. So the few hours weren't enough. But again, if you think of a grid where the peak is defined in, you know, minutes or half hour increments, being able to put that off by hours it is a really good start towards stabilizing, even if it doesn't get you all the way there. And Alberta's just beginning to deploy batteries with a provincial government that's ideologically opposed to them. Imagine if they were trying. Imagine if they, if the, you know, if if you know those in charge in the province actually wanted this stuff as much as many, many, many of their constituents do. You know, then we'd really be stabilizing quickly and 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 backing out fossil fuels a lot faster, which of course is what we need to do for climate as well as economic, as well as jobs, as well as energy democracy, as well as community reasons. Yeah. This is almost for- sounding like a soft energy path, but hey, that couldn't be. That's just no, crazy. of course not. Can't do that. No. <laughs> um, I mean, I I will dedicate perhaps a future show to talk about physical batteries because I am obsessed with physical batteries. 
I, I do understand that there's some price problems, but also if your goal is to decarbonize and to not create significant expectations on minerals in mining, yeah. physical batteries are huge. And for listeners, just to explain, physical batteries are things like pumping water up a hill using the power when you have it and then letting it wash back down and spin a generator when you don't. Here in the city of Toronto, there's a giant balloon in the harbor where which they expand this. whenever they have extra power and then it deflates and spins a generator when they need power back. There's a fair amount of energy loss in some of these things. And so there's a question. I've re- listened to a few semi-recent podcasts about the question of exactly how cheap you could get these physical things. But my take on this a little bit is like, if the goal is to create a just energy system that is not overly relying on mining that is, you know, causing the damage it does and is not overly relying on fossil fuels which are causing damage it does, then paying a premium on weird storage techniques that are just, you know, <laughs> just fun and just moving things around when you have energy and not when you don't, to me is a trade-off I would personally make, but at scale you know i'll leave that there because it would take another 20 minutes to fall down that rabbit hole I think. okay so 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 just a couple of uh quick sort of uh, quick responses on that first of all weird storage techniques has to become a technical term i insist okay secondly yeah. if the cost is high that's a really good reason to conserve and and and, and maximize efficiency and if the cost is high it's really easy for any of us who are fortunate enough to be in a position to be able to say it, no offense, but you know, any of us who can say, oh, sure, I'll take on that price premium. Sure, unless back to households that are choosing between food and fuel and facing all kinds of other, you know, sort of similar dire challenges. And to my mind, that puts a real obligation on the system to make sure that energy is affordable as well as being reliable, as well as being just. Because that's not something we can do individually in our lives and in our households. That has to be a system problem. That's why we have a system. It has to be yeah. a system solution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, personally, I would just think that everyone should have the energy they need to survive as a government service. That we shouldn't be charging people and making them make that choice. But that's then I get then I get then I get called a socialist and then we lose and then I have to. Like, <laughs> then have you lose a, listeners, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, our listeners already know I'm a socialist. They're fine. It's more of if I had to go out into the real world. But anyways, so you know, maybe the gas industry should think about getting into the real world too, you know? Maybe. But you know, they they can hang out. They've been they've been protected from the real world for quite some time. Uh, You know, God can dream, right? You know. Yes, exactly. So we have about 10 to 12-ish minutes left. Is there any other stories that you want to cover before we jump to a music break? Or shall we go to music break and then come back? Well, I've got a couple. One is, and it actually ties in with this, and it's actually a pop quiz. And I'm going to say, don't think twice. If you had to name the jurisdiction in and around North America that is on track to building the biggest virtual power plant in the area, and and this is what we've been talking about, where you know batteries are widely enough available in this jurisdiction that they are either minimizing or potentially eliminating any need for peak power because the batteries have so much off-peak electricity that they've stored and they're so reliable that the grid can count on that to shave down the peak. If you had to name which jurisdiction that is, don't think twice. Who do you name? I was actually Arizona You were thinking twice. No fair. I mean... I... <laughs> Like for I went I, I for some reason went with Arizona. I have no idea why. Is it on okay, North America? That's interesting. I asked some I asked somebody else that question earlier today, and they said California. It's Puerto Rico. Ah, okay. that makes sense because that makes a lot of because sense because after because also when Hurricane Maria came along and just like wiped out their grid for practical purposes, the grid operator was already seriously troubled, seriously dysfunctional. The hurricane did the rest, and after that, there, there was. <laughs> really slow, horrific capacity to rebuild. And so people started saying, well, yeah, rooftop solar looks pretty good. And then it got down to, well, sure, why wouldn't I want a battery with that? And then people started talking about microgrids and outsiders started piling in and you know putting in funding and technology for microgrids. And at this point, 
virtual power plants in a story that we ran this morning that we republished, I should say, from Grist Magazine, which is an amazing source in the United States. And we we received that from them through the Covering Climate Now News Collaborative, which is also phenomenal. Apparently, these microgrids are now becoming a real source of local pride and are on track. They're not there yet, but if the development continues at the rate it's going, these virtual power plants will apparently reduce or eliminate the need for gas peaker plants in Puerto Rico. Um, the, another story we've been following, and this is just because I love the tech, uh, in Falls Creek in Vancouver, um, um, I believe it's about 44 buildings are getting their heat from wastewater energy transfer, which is taking the waste heat from sewage water and drawing it off and putting it through a heat exchanger so that it can be used for space heat. And what I love about this is that it's an example of a simple, smart, obvious solution that's ready to be scaled up and applied elsewhere that's hardly known at all. I have a friend and close colleague who's been saying for about a year and a half that heat pumps are the most interesting essential technology that nobody's heard of. And now we're finding that that's nowhere, that isn't true anymore because heat pumps are finally having a moment and we need them having more than a moment. We need them to keep having it. But I would say that waste energy, waste, uh, wastewater energy transfer has taken over that sort of pre-moment stage from, from heat pumps. And we were so glad to see, actually, with the BBC that picked this up and one of our team reported that story, I think picked up a couple of other sources on other projects. One that's going on at Toronto Western Hospital that's really interesting. And, you know, this is something we need to be watching for. There is so much potential. And every time we can do something like this, you know, if you imagine that you're planning a new development and you're assuming that you're going to need gas boilers, well, guess again, at very least, if you if it's if it's viable for you to get a wastewater energy transfer system in, at very least, you'll be able to downsize that gas boiler or only use it at particular times. And if you really plan it properly and maximize energy efficiency, who knows, you might be able to take it out completely, which means you're not paying big bucks for a new gas boiler that everybody hates you for and you actually wouldn't have needed. So there's really no downside to putting in the planning time at effort, as False Creek did, as Toronto Western did, and see where it leads and scale this, this technology up the way heat pumps are now beginning to scale. There are so many more stories, but you don't want me to go on that long. I can guarantee <laughs> that. I, I, I mean, we do have about 10 minutes left in the show. I'm going to go a quick music break and then we'll come back because there are a couple other stories that I would love to get you just mentioned briefly. So we'll be right back uh, with Mitchell Beer on Green Majority. Take us away. Truly co-create in a vibrational way, manifest vibrationally, begin to act intuitively, begin to listen to the heart code, begin to communicate from the heart out of love, and begin to create a unity consciousness based on the heart And welcome back to Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of a greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which you can found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. We're doing some amazing work over there. If you're just joining us, my name is Stephen Hostetter. I'm here with Mitchell Beer, and this is our semi-monthly, approximately monthly segment, Having a Beer with Mitchell Beer, recently named... And if you have any questions for Mitchell or for someone who has spent his last 30, 40 years or since since faxes didn't exist in this ecosystem, please send them our way via the contact us page uh, on greenmajority.ca. 
So and I'm just going to add to that that you also, I just learned today, you get to spend time with a radio host who took a course in this stuff 10 or 20 years ago and brings loads of expertise as well. Yes, I will also have my thoughts. <laughs> they are limited of value, but they exist. You bet. Um, so with our last about five to seven minutes, I do want to take a chance to chat with you about one of the stories that was recently on uh, the Energy Mix, which is about how it seems like oil companies, after going on and on about how it would be so hard to decarbonize and how unfair the Trudeau government is has been been to them, they're now just sort of seemingly waiting out this government. They're sort of like, we don't have to actually do this work because we don't think we'll be in power in two years. So we'll just do nothing and just bet that Polyev will just cut in power and forgive us. So can you tell us a little bit about this, what they're up to in that strategy? Well, this is this is just horrifying. And it, it came up before the holiday. And and for us, I mean, we usually shut down production for a couple of weeks in December. And it's a real question for us when we're back in January. Do we even cover anything from the old year? Because it's old news, you know, and yet this one, this story was so important to bring back. It had been covered in mid-December, you know, has it any guess you like about how attentive people were just in the in, in the days before the holiday break. But it really, to my mind, goes to the heart of our democracy. You know, if you have an elected government that is setting the rules and and you know taking the time taking exhaustive time you know to do the listening and do the consultation this government has been bending over backwards as environment and climate groups never hesitate to point out they've been bending over backwards to get their regulations and their planning done in a way that accommodates fossil fuel companies they've been meeting with them talking with them there are there, there's a there's a bot that tracks how often the fossil lobby talks to to federal minister and and you know the numbers are horrifying so it's not as though these people don't have access it isn't as though they haven't had their chance and and made good use of their chance you know to to shape these regulations you know and yet when it comes right down to it they will drag they will delay they will slow down and ultimately they will wait until they get the government they want you know and i have no doubt that the you know that the funding and i'm not implying illegal funding but the, the you know the funding and any, any other kind of source any kind of support they can throw at that potential next government i have no doubt that that'll be a part of the picture as well it is the fossil fuel industry playbook that we've been seeing since the 1970s and 80s you know when exxon knew what we were dealing as we were saying earlier Exxon knew what we were dealing with and didn't choose to let the rest of us in on the secret. They, in turn, are playing from the tobacco industry playbook, you know, which worked so well for decades. And frankly, this one's personal because the tobacco industry murdered my mother. And so many of us, in one way or another, can say precisely exactly the same thing, because that's what tobacco does, just like fossil fuels. The, the difference is that there is so much benefit we've all derived from fossil fuels over the over the years and decades, and let's acknowledge that. But aside from that, what fossil fuels and tobacco have in common is that they cause rack and destruction when used as directed. So here we are. One thing that's interesting and that we're going to be exploring a lot more, I hope in this week's weekender, but also in the weeks and months ahead, is that this is not just happening in Canada. There have been a bunch of different news stories and opinion pieces over the past little while about the, I think it's the majority of the Earth's population, is going to be going to the polls this year. You know, at a time when what's being called right-wing populism, I tend more to think of it as right-wing popular fundamentalism, is on the rise. There is a worry, if not a real possibility, that I don't even want to say this. Donald Trump will be back in the White House next year. Yeah, sorry to swear at you on the air. And so wherever there is the risk or the possibility or the reality that putting in less partisan terms, more deregulatory governments, governments that are either outright climate deniers or less inclined to take any action both on the reality of the climate emergency and on the opportunity, the massive opportunity to transition out. That's a huge risk. 
to all of us and to anything that we care about. And, and, you know, I think it's just one of a few different ways in which 2024 really is going to be a pivot point. We ended last year, I think, with a huge amount of momentum and a lot more hope th than we necessarily would have had any reason to expect going into UN climate conference taking place in a petro state and chaired by a fossil fuel CEO. And yet after 30 years of effort, we got the fossil fuel transition declaration that we needed. We're already starting to see the results of that in small ways, not in the big ways we need, but it's starting already. And it's only been a month and a bit. Okay. So after that, 24, 2024 really is the pivot. And frankly, if I were in the fossil industry, and I'm not proposing that I ever will or would be in this, but you know, if I were in their shoes, I'd be doing exactly that. I'm not justifying it. It's wrong. It's horrific. But the way much of the industry defines its interest, of course, they'll hold out. That's how the politics are played. And it's up to the rest of us to make sure they don't get away with it. Right. That makes sense. Well, what a way to end this season or episode of having a beer with Mitchell Beer. If again, we'll be back next month with this segment. So if you have questions, please do send them our way through the contact us page at greenmajor.ca. My name is Stefan Hostetter. I'm here with Mitchell Beer, the producer of the Energy Mix. And thank you so much for being here and have a wonderful day. It's not easy being a queen. It's not easy.